Hi, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Linda Holmes. It's hard to think of a corner of the book world that's more varied and more vital than YA. A story about high school can be anything from a romantic comedy to a murder mystery. In a few minutes, we'll get to that mystery, Nick Brooks' Promise Boys. We've got a romantic comedy first. Talia Hibbert has a really devoted following as a writer of love stories for adults. Maybe her best-known books are a trilogy about sisters that started with 2019's Get a Life, Chloe Brown. But she hadn't really thought about writing a romance for teenagers until a publisher reached out to suggest it to her. Her new book has the delicious title, Highly Suspicious and Unfairly Cute. It's about two former best friends who drifted apart and who now, in high school, find themselves drawn back to each other. Hibbert tells NPR's Andrew Limbong, the once and future host of this very podcast, that the book wound up being so personal for her that she thanked one of the lead characters in the acknowledgments. She also talks about being a writer who lives in the UK, but who at first found more readers in the US. And of course... Andrew asks her about Meghan Markle. The new novel, Highly Suspicious and Unfairly Cute, tells the story of two black teenagers, Celine and Brad. They're ambitious high achievers who used to be best friends once upon a time. But that all changed because of, well, you know, high school. Celine embraced being a self-proclaimed weirdo, and Brad went on to be a star soccer player and one of the most popular guys in school. Needless to say, the two don't have the easiest relationship, and so when they both get accepted into a prestigious survival course, they are stuck in the woods with an ex-best friend who is, as the title suggests, both highly suspicious and unfairly cute. The book is written by New York Times bestselling author Talia Hibbert, and she joins us from Nottingham, England to talk more about it. Talia Hibbert, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, nice to have you here. All right, so... I want to start with Celine. You know, she's like I said, she's a high achieving student. She's ambitious and she wants to study law. And I think like a lot of teenagers, she's sometimes full of self-confidence and then sometimes just like racked (laughs) with self-doubt, you know. (laughs) Um, How did this character come to you? Wow. Well, I just really love writing women and girls who don't necessarily fit the so-called ideal of how a woman or a girl is supposed to behave. I really like writing female characters who might be labeled as difficult or unlikable. Um, And so I really enjoyed this idea of like an outcast, a quote unquote weirdo who's super unapologetic about it and is also maybe a bit of a nerd and is super unapologetic about that and is just going for what she wants and doesn't care what people think of her. Yeah, she's the type to wear like docs. Right with the dress, like she's that type of girl. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the other main character in the book is a guy named Brad. He's you know he's like that guy, right? He's popular, he's charming, he's handsome, and we learn early on that he and Celine used to be really good friends, but then you know high school drama <laughs> get, gets in the way. Um, tell us a little bit more about Brad. So with Brad, I really wanted to dig deeper into the trope of like the golden boy and show how. You can have someone who's really charming and successful and popular, but that doesn't make them kind of a perfect stereotype. And also, especially with Brad being a black boy, I wanted to be able to show the reality of black boys being three-dimensional people and having more to them than the way society might read them. Um, So it was important to me that he'd be able to have a full and complete personality. Yeah, he's actually the first person you thank in the acknowledgments, which I didn't see coming. Can you talk a little bit about that? (laughs) Yeah, so I thank Brad because 
Brad has OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and I also have OCD. And it was something that I hadn't thought a lot about or explored in terms of what it meant for me personally, because it is something that runs in my family. And so it's something that I'd grown up thinking, you know, maybe I have it, probably I have it, not really going to think about it. But then I had a diagnosis and I was writing Brad and it was playing a more prominent role in my life, both in my work and personally. And writing Brad being someone who really handles his mental health very responsibly and also tries to sort of treat it as something that he's dealing with without necessarily letting it consume him. That was a really positive experience for me and I felt like I was sort of writing a a blueprint for myself. Yeah, he like, he's very self-aware when, say, like intrusive thoughts come in, Mm -hmm. right? Or when he's like hyper-focusing. There's all these like little bits in the book, but it doesn't take up his old personality. Mm. Did it, you know, force you to sort of like reckon with it in your own life? And then did you like do a bunch of research and start like thinking about how to handle it and deal with it? So one thing I did was at the time I was having like a cognitive behavioral therapy to try and deal with my OCD. And a lot of the time I would leave a session and instead of being like, hmm, how am I going to apply that in my life? I'd be like, ooh, Brad would do this or that. Um, And, (laughs) you know, I think actually in the end that helped me kind of remember and prioritize and process things for myself because I'm just a bit more passionate about what I'm writing than I am about the boring day-to-day realities of taking care of myself. (laughs) So (laughs) it it was a useful kind of intertwining of research and experience. Yeah. So this isn't, you know, this is far from your first book. You've written a number of romance novels that are mainly aimed at adults. What drew you to writing a YA novel? So this book is published in the U.S. with Joy Revolution. And the mission essentially is to show people of color having these joyous love stories. And I was just really inspired by that idea. And they reached out to me and asked if I had ever considered writing YA because they felt that my adult novels sort of fit the bill. But obviously this imprint is for teens. And at the time I I hadn't and I told them as much. But I started thinking about it, you know, and after a few days... I went from, I've never done that before and I don't know if I can do that, to, well, I really like YA and I think this sounds really cool, so why shouldn't I do it? Um, So I asked if I could, you know, come up with some ideas and pitch them and I thought about it and when I came up with the pitch for Highly Suspicious and Unfairly Cute, I was like, no, I really want to write this, actually. (laughs) I really changed my (laughs) mind. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's long been a conversation, in at least here in the U.S., about like representation, especially in literature aimed at younger readers. But, you know, we know that different countries have different experiences. And I think it has to be said that the U.K. press has come under scrutiny uh, in recent years for its treatment of a- at least one uh, person of color in a high-profile relationship. I'm talking about Meghan Markle. I'm wondering what the response to your books have been. Um, what, what have you been hearing from readers? So here in the U.K., it's a it's a funny status quo, and it has been highlighted to the rest of the world more recently with the treatment of Meghan Markle. I've always, from the start of my career, noticed and been unsurprised by the fact that American readers, they make up a much larger percentage of my readership. Um, oh, really? Yeah, definitely. And I definitely found a lot more success in every meaning of the word in the US before I saw my books in bookshops here in the UK, for example. You know, I was getting pictures 
sent from readers in the US saying, I saw your book at the airport, I saw your book in a Barnes and Noble, but I couldn't go to any bookshop here and pick up my book. You yeah, know, like at the that Waterstones, point. right? Is that the big chain? Yeah, yeah. from Waterstones. Mm-hmm. I, I remember when Get a Life, Chloe Brown came out, I was like, oh, this is my first traditionally published book. Like, this is a big deal. And it's doing so well in the US. I'm going to go to Waterstones and see if they have it. And I went to a few and they were all like, no. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, can you <laughs> order it? Because like, I live down the street, so it seems like you should have my book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, it's just been a bit more slow going. But the thing is, I do think that readers here are just as eager for this. And, you know, librarians and booksellers and everyone in the bookish community here are just as eager for these types of stories as people in the US are. I just think that the way things are set up here makes discoverability of this sort of thing a lot harder. Before we let you go, I know this is a YA novel, so you know it's aimed at younger readers. Is there like a specific teen in mind that you had in mind as you wrote this book? And what is it that you hope they take away from it? So I have a lot of teens and young people in my life who I really love, like my nephews and friends of the family and things like that. And I definitely had all of them in mind when I was writing this, thinking, what would I be really happy to see them reading? And what do I think they might read and think, oh, that was so fun. Or, oh, I really saw myself in that. So I think that was my aim when I was writing the book, was to write for someone who wanted to have a fun time, but also wanted to feel sort of recognized and included. That was Talia Hibbert. Her new book, Highly Suspicious and Unfairly Cute, is out now. Talia Hibbert, thanks so much for talking to us. No, thank you for having me. It's been great. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. We promised you a murder mystery, but Nick Brooks' Promise Boys is more than just that. It's about three black teenage boys who are suspected in the murder of the principal of their charter school. NPR's Aisha Rasko talked to Brooks about kids who have to survive so much, including the assumptions other people make about them. As the city of Memphis and the nation comes to terms with the brutal video of Tyree Nichols being beaten by the police, we're thinking of the systems that shape a society where young Black men and boys are often treated like criminals no matter what they do. Earlier this week, we spoke to author Nick Brooks about his new young adult novel, Promise Boys, that explores some of those systems. The book is set in the Urban Promise Prep School, a fictional charter school in Southeast Washington, D.C. Here's Nick Brooks reading the school's anthem. We promise. We are the young men of Urban Promise Prep. We are destined for greatness. We are college-bound. We are primed for success. We are extraordinary because we work hard. We are respectful, dedicated, committed, and focused. We are our brother's keepers. We are responsible for our futures. We are the future. We promise. The school is led by the strict, no-nonsense principal, Kenneth Moore. But when he turns up dead, three boys, JB, Trey, and Ramon, are accused of his murder. Author Nick Brooks introduces us to Principal Kenneth Moore. I mean, he's a man who 
I think come from the same system, you know, that he um, is trying to prepare these young men for. Um, and because of he had to be thrown in the fire, it's what he does to these young men. Because on one hand, he starts off with a really noble cause, trying to help these boys matriculate. But that cause starts to corrupt them. One thing that struck me about the story was these are kids. In many ways, they're being told that they need to be men and what it takes to be a man. And they're not really being allowed to be kids, especially in the school and the structure of the school. Um, They're not even allowed to really talk, Mm -hmm. laugh, any of that stuff. Why did you want to explore that in this book? I kind of grew up in a household that a little bit mirrors uh, the structure of Promise Boys as far as like how discipline was drilled into these young men. And it's unfortunate because I think as Black men trying to raise, they're so scorned and they and they, and they they feel so jaded by generational trauma that they feel they need to pour certain things into to young Black men to help them succeed. And so Principal Moore is kind of falling into that bag, right? Where he's seeing that, oh, in order for America uh, or whiteness, the patriarchy, and the, you know, all, all of these kind of buzzwords, in order for them to accept you, you have to be excellent. You did in the in the structure of this book, you use a lot of different perspectives. So you have the different chapters, but a lot of them are from the perspective of different mm-hmm. characters. Why did you choose to tell the story in that way? Yeah, well, really, we, we thought it'd be like most cinematic, honestly. Well, two reasons. One, be most cinematic, but then two, the mystery component. Um, I think the the multi-perspective, it really like lends itself to mystery really well. And then another piece of it, too, is like when I first came into a school, um, before you would even meet the kids, sometimes you would meet all of these other people, like whether it were community members or other teachers, you would have like all of these different perspectives about who that kid was. <laughs> and so for me, I always kind of just met students for who they were. So going back to the multiple perspective thing, it was like, you know, a way to to hide the mystery. It was very cinematic, but also a way to like stimulate kind of a, a real experience before you even meet these young men, you're meeting all these people who have things to say about them. When you talk about kind of that tough love, that idea that um, you have to be very hard on these young boys so they don't end up in the system, that's kind of like what was happening with Trey Mm -hmm. and his uncle Mm -hmm. who he's living with, where he's getting really abused. But, I mean, his uncle is is saying this is what he thought he needed to do to Mm -hmm. keep him in line, get him in check. There's this push and pull between I want to keep you alive. 100%. But then that can also be just as harmful when you're putting that type of pressure on a child. A hundred percent. There's been a lot of content like in TV and film to come out recently that takes place in and around slavery. Right. And I was watching it and, you know, I was really thinking that a lot of these, these are survival techniques, right? Like, like a black man telling the the black and trying to beat into him, Hey, you got to be obedient. You got to be disciplined. That's a survival technique. And you can literally trace that all the way back because I'm sure, (laughs) you know, on a plantation or something, Mm-hmm. that was something that you felt like you had to do because you, you could not have that child step out of line or whatever, right? I think a lot of our ways that we, like, rear kids are are still survival techniques. People are still in survival mode. And so it's just one of those things that we have to break. And then not to mention the whole hyper-masculinity, you know, we also kind of talk about in the book. But again, growing up in an environment where it's a survival technique, you feel like you have to be hyper-masculine because at any given moment, you can be tested. You know what I mean? And so a lot of these toxic traits that we have it pains me because I understand it's really a re- reflection of the positions that we've been put in. The kids aren't inherently bad. The people aren't inherently bad. 
it really comes down to, you know, how do we change it up? Because what we've been doing hasn't been working. Mm. This is a young adult book. Um, as you said, you want kids and, and people all over the world to read this. But what do you want for, you know, the young black and brown children that will read this? What do you hope they take away from this story? What I'm hoping is that this hits so close to home for a lot of them that, that they're like, oh, man, like I see myself in this book. Like I can I have stories like I have stories that I can tell because um, I just don't want to inspire people to read. But I want to inspire these kids to write. You know, I really want kids to take away like I see myself in this and I can do this. I can I can tell a story like this. That's Nick Brooks, who is the author of Promise Boys. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Perfect. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookofthedaday at npr.org. I'm Linda Holmes. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Julie Deppenbrock, Rina Advani, Andrew Craig, Dee Parvaz, Ashley Lisenby, Matthew Sherman, Tinbeet Ermias, Gurjeet Kaur, Hiba Ahmad, and Hadil Al-Shalchi. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.